All right, just turn the Bibles today to Proverbs chapter 21. Now, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 today. You know what? I have got the wrong glasses on. Just hang on a minute. I know. I cannot see with these glasses other than long distance. Proverbs chapter 21. All right. Now, look out. I can see now. Proverbs chapter 21, and we want to look at verses uh, 12 and 13 today. And again today, <coughs> we're going to get into some more principles. Uh, every week, I want to give you, as we come through here, uh, principles that uh, are found that uh, really will impact your life. You know, I know most of you pretty well, if not all of you, and no matter where you're at in your Christian life, and I know some of you are struggling with some things, you're growing through some things, some of you are past some things and you're moving along, but I think it would be safe to say that the goal of all of us, I'm pretty sure about this, you may not get this goal in your life, but I think that it would be safe to say that the goal of us all today is at some point in our life to have the knowledge of God like we talked about last week in Proverbs chapter 2. His total understanding in our lives of all the things in faith and practice. Think about what it would be like if we went through life never making a mistake, never getting yourself into a bad situation. Think what it would be like to have a life that you went through it with a perfect understanding of everything that comes your way. How much better life would be if that were possible? And yet I want you to know that theoretically it is possible. Now I know that we're human and I know that we all tend on the human side and we fail. I get that. I totally understand it. But I want you to know that fundamentally, theoretically, there is a way for us to do that. If not 100% because of our old nature that we have to struggle with, certainly in a high percentage that through most of the issues in life that we 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 can persevere through. But we'll do this through learning and using the principles found in the Word of God. A while back when we were in Proverbs chapter 4, I gave you a verse in verse 7 of chapter 4 that says that wisdom is the principal thing. And it goes on to say that when you get wisdom that it leads through principles to understanding. And if you're ever going to get the wisdom of God in your life, to be able to look at the things in life and see them, not from a human standpoint, not from an emotional standpoint, not from a a standpoint that lends fear or anxiety to it, but clearly see it as God sees it, you're going to have to do it through the principles. The principles of the Word of God or the building blocks of the Christian faith. You add to them, you lay a sure foundation in your life with them, and uh, you build around you uh, a wall of protection. I've said it many times, and it's a great analogy, and it really 
it, it illustrates what I'm trying to say. In the Old Testament, around Jerusalem, they had built a wall. All the cities had walls back then because the walls were there for their protection. And the walls were there to keep the bad people out and keep uh, some order to things. And there were certain areas of gates that you had to go through to get into the city. It wasn't like just driving from Kansas City to Independence where you could take a number of roads. There was a wall around that city. And that wall was very high, very thick. You couldn't breach it. In fact, many times when uh, they tried to lay siege to a city, they, they would just lock themselves in and it was impossible to break through those walls. Some of those walls were 60, 100 feet thick and 100 feet high. And it was very expensive manpower-wise and casualties to try to take that city by breaching that wall. They'd just stand up there and throw rocks on you or shoot you or do whatever they did. So that wall in the Bible is a picture around the city is protection. That wall for you and for me of protection is the Bible doctrines that we all know. And you build in your life by the principles, Bible teachings, Bible doctrines, one block brick at a time. And when you come in, and you just get saved, or maybe you have been saved, but you've never been plugged into the Bible. <clears throat> when you get saved, the first thing you do is lay a foundation in your life. The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, that foundation is Jesus Christ. The rest of your life, you're building on that foundation. What do you build? Well, I know 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says, wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stone. I get that. But in truth, for your own practical life, you build on that foundation the principles of the Word of God. One block at a time. And what you do is you get to the point after four or five years, 10, 15 years, some of you 20, 30 years, in my case, 150 years, you get to the point where the wall is so high and so thick and so strong that nothing can penetrate it. And that wall is based on the biblical principles. You remember back a great passage back in Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 through 10, where he says, whom shall he teach knowledge, and whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Then he goes on to say, Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breasts. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, and there a little. That is a picture of somebody building a wall. Now, when you build walls... Whether it's brick walls, you know, in your home or a building or a, a wall in your backyard, you lay those, you lay a foundation and you lay those bricks on it in courses. And then when you put the first down, you don't just put the next brick right on top of it. You, you put it in the middle of it and you, you tie them in, so to speak. And all the wall, the strength of the wall is not in the blocks themselves. Because if you just put them on top of each other, you could walk over and just push the wall over. The strength of any wall is you tying those blocks into the other blocks. And the key to your Christian life and your strength and your ability to understand the things of God and build your wall straight is not just throwing out principles and giving them to you, but showing you how to tie them in to the other principles. And in time, you'll build the wall. Many of you already have. Many of you, uh, when it comes to the ministry here, I simply couldn't do it without you. 
and many of you are right behind them, and your, your invaluability is just coming along incredibly well, and you're going to be a great asset to this ministry. Many other of you of just getting in and starting you know, where you're at, you're going to be something special uh, by the time you get to the point uh, in your life where you really be able to be used of God. But the Bible says you build it precept upon precept. That's principles. Principles are a, are a, are a, a structure principle or verse or a passage in the Scripture that holds together an idea. Principles and precepts give you an authoritative rule of action, a way to go that is the right way to go. Principles will uh, make, uh, make you to understand doctrine. Uh, Thursday night, I think it was Sam that asked a great question over there in Matthew chapter 22. And I took the time to show you how that you understand that passage and what it's saying by finding the principles that will give you what you really have in that particular passage. That's really, that's really all it is. Now, that was a passage about the nation of Israel. But you know what? It works the same way in principles for your everyday living. But verse 9 says that it has to start with milk. When you come in here and maybe you don't know anything about the Bible, you're not sure about anything that, that it, it, you, know, you want to learn, we start you with the milk. We give you discipleship one, and we have an incredible abundance of people here that are really good with discipleship one and two. And they'll bring you through the basic building blocks. You'll learn the basic structure about God, the Bible, your Christian life, the church, the Word of God, the th- prayer, the things that are, that are the vital beginning milk of the Word of God. You get principles in your life a couple of different ways. They just don't happen with time. Principles are something you have to work at. You have to have a plan to get them. It's not like discipleship one and discipleship two. Totally different. Principles are in a whole different world. You get them by, first of all, learning them. And if you notice around here, I'm throwing them out to you all the time. You're probably going to get five or six or seven here today. You got five last week, even though Nikki Halliburton couldn't count, couldn't find them. You, you, you got them. Because everything in the Christian life is built on principles. And, and we start with those. We start by learning them. And then the next thing you have to do is catalog them. We do this in the people ministry. We do this in in the Bible Institute, not directly, but by indirectly. And we certainly do it on Thursday night or or Sunday morning because I'm always laying them out for you and I always will keep them before you. Last week we saw Hebrews chapter 5. Oh, I mean, sorry. And the third thing is you have to use them. So you have to learn them, you have to catalog them, then you have to use them. They won't do you any good if you don't use them. I, I, last week in Hebrews chapter 5, we talked about uh, how somebody that uh, has to be taught the Word of God over and over and over again, the basic fundamentals. There's a lot of God's people that way. I've known God's people through discipleship five or six, seven, eight times, and it still hasn't got him anywhere. We have to always go back to the beginning, to the fundamentals. You shouldn't have to do that. You, your Christian life should be a progression where you're continually growing. And when you get the principles and you find them, you catalog them, and then you use them, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 5, it exercises your senses. It gives you discernment. Discernment is kin to understanding. Once you understand what God understands, then you have the discernment to be able to apply it in different situations of life or whatever. The Bible 
don't take this wrong, but the Bible is worthless by itself. The Bible is worthless by itself. You need to use it. That's why God gave it to you. Uh, you find a great example of this in Exodus chapter 16. Exodus chapter 16 is probably <coughs> my favorite chapter in the Bible uh, on the Word of God. I, I, I just love it. And it, of course, it's a picture of, of God bringing the manna down to the children of Israel. Uh, I'll tell you, if you ever want to get a good understanding of it, get Arthur Pink's book on gleanings in Exodus. Oh, man. Uh, it, it's incredible when he gets into chapter 16. And I, you know, they left Egypt, type of the world. They're God's people, and now they're in, a, in what the Bible calls the wilderness of sin. And it's a great picture of you and me, because once you got saved, you're still in this world, and obviously this world is a wilderness to us as God's people, and it's the wilderness of sin. They were out there, there was nothing to eat, and there was nothing to drink. It was a wilderness. And in a spiritual sense, once you get saved, I'm going to tell you something. Whether you know this or not yet, the world has nothing left for you to eat or drink. It's a wilderness. And so they had to sustain themselves. They had to have some kind of nourishment. So you know what God did? God gave them a supernatural gift called manna. Manna is a type of the Word of God in the Bible. It was a supernatural gift that God brought down to right where they were. They didn't have to go look for it. They didn't have to find the Dead Sea Scrolls. They didn't have to go back in some dusty archives and find some Greek manuscript that they were going to get the truth one. God brought the manna, the nourishment that they needed, right to where they were. And He just didn't give it to the scholarly crowd. It was all around the camp. It's all around the camp. They went to sleep at night and it just came down like snow. Every time we get a good snowfall in Kansas City, which has not been too much lately, <coughs> I walk out there at night, you know, out of the garage and, and watch that snow fall on the ground and I always think about it. I always think that must be what it looked like when God rained down the manna from heaven. You know, he had to rain down. We're talking about two or three million people. We get the idea, oh, little manna from heaven. There had to be almost 160 tons of manna a night. That's a lot of bread. And it's coming floating down there, you know, while they sleep. They woke up in the morning and opened up the tent door. It was all around them. What they needed, this is, listen to me, what they needed to sustain them through their wilderness journey came right to where they were. They didn't have to look for it. They didn't have to, they didn't have to go to Bible college to get it. They didn't, it was right where they were. And you know what? God has given you the Word of God and brought it right to where you are. You don't have to go anywhere to find it. It's right there. But God bringing down the manna and bringing it all around them brought on a decision on their part. Because it's all around the ground. And when they threw back that tent flap in the morning, they came to a decision. They either gathered what they needed or they just trampled it under their feet and went on their way. You know, we do the same thing with the Word of God that God has given us. God brought it right to where we're at. He's given you and me everything we need to sustain us in our wilderness of sin. But it's your choice to either pick it up when God gave it to you or trample it under your feet. And there lies the difference between those who make it and those who don't. Now, I said all that to say this. They had to gather it every morning. But when they gathered it, they had to do something with it. If they just put it in a pot or put it in a bag, a Ziploc bag, I don't know if they had them back then, or if they just 
put it someplace and stored it up for later and didn't do anything with it, Bible says that it began to stink and it began to bread worms. In other words, that's the, what's wrong with a lot of God's people. Don't take this wrong, but you stink and you got a bad case of worms. And I don't take that as a derogatory thing. That's a, I'm, that's a principle. You ought to love that. You see, the Word of God can't just sit dormant. Everybody says, I got a Bible in my house. That's because you got a coffee table. <laughs> you know, we got more Bibles in America than they got probably around the world, and yet we use our Bibles less than they do anywhere in the world today. And that's just where it is. God brought it right where they were, but they had to do something with it. Now, let's read our text this morning, and then we're going to delve into some principles here. And uh, let's, uh, let's read Proverbs chapter 21, verses 12 and 13. Before we do that, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's ask God's blessing. Justin, over here, would you stand up and ask God's blessing on the service this morning for me, buddy? Amen. Thank you, son. Now, it says in verse 12, The righteous man wisely considereth the house of the wicked, but God overthroweth the wicked for their wickedness. Verse 13, Whoso stoppeth his ears at the cry of the poor, he also shall cry himself, but shall not be heard. Now, verse 12 says that a righteous man will wisely consider the house of the wicked. Now, there's a couple of things here I want to look at. First of all, Let's talk about how the word house is used in the Bible. We talk about the whole house of Israel. The Bible talks about your body being a house in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It can be a literal house that you live in with your wife, your husband, and your children, or your parents. Uh, it can be a house that once you get married, you move into with your husband and wife. It's a place in your life where you really feel comfortable, a lifestyle. A house is, is where you live. It's where you, 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 you know uh, everything really well. It's a place that you feel comfortable with. So we want to talk about considering the house by looking at some practical things of some things, some houses that we go into. Some houses that we go into that probably should not go into. The righteous man here. Doctrinally, of course, it's the nation of Israel. I don't want to spend a lot of time doctrinally today. You can figure that out by now. But there's so much good practical stuff. And there's so many people here that need to hear this. So inspirationally, it's a picture of you and me, saved man or woman. You know, as a saved child of God, we have the ability to make judgment calls on the things that we want to come into our lives or not come into our lives. You know, when you're invited over to somebody's house, you know this is true. You know it's true, especially you women. You go into somebody's house and you're there for a while and you walk out and you're driving home and the husband in the car and you say, that was really a nice house. 
You say, you know what? That was a really small house. Man, was that house big. I had people one time that were discipling somebody that their house was so dirty when they laid their Bible down on a coffee table that stuck to it, they had to pry it up off the table. That's a dirty house. Kids were over in the corner eating food that had been left in the corner on the floor for three or four days. That's a dirty house. We all make judgments about the houses we go into. Uh, you can't help it. I, I never, to me, I've never seen a bad house. I think it always looks nice. Somebody go down to somebody's house, and, you know, I, I think that, you know, pet hair just comes with a, a good quality character person. If you don't have pet hair in your house, there's something wrong with you. You know? I went to my, my vet the other day, and I got a big sign on the wall that says, no clothing and no entire is complete without dog hair on it. I agree with that. agree with that. I agree with that. I, I go into people's houses, and I look around, and I say, hey, works for me. I mean, it's better than a cardboard box under I-435 bridge someplace. It looks great, you know? Women are different. You know, women always have this thing about, a, about houses, you know, wow, it was just, I just, I, 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 you know, you know, it, it was too big, it's too small, you know, it, it, it didn't like this, I didn't like the color, it was dark in there. And I, okay, you know what, it's their house. That's what they like with, it's okay with me. They all come over to your house, they say, oh, it's too big, it's too bright, it's too happy, everybody's happy here, I don't want to be here anymore. I get it. But we all make judgment calls on houses. Except when it comes to the houses we put ourselves into. My Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15, that he that is spiritual. Are you spiritual this morning? Uh, don't, you don't have to answer that because I don't want just one or two of you to say anything. <laughs> are you spiritual this morning? If you are, the Bible says, he that is spiritual judgeth all things. Now we have a crowd that gets upset with that. Well, judge not, least you should be judged. It didn't say judge people. It judges things. I don't judge people. I've met some of the most horrendous people in my life over the last couple of 20, 40 years of my ministry. And, and I, I, I mean, I don't, I, I don't judge them because I know at the end of the day, I'm no different than they are. And we all have our old sin nature. We all have our problems. But I'll tell you what you need to judge. You need to judge the things that the houses that people get into to see if it fits for you. He that is spiritual judges all things. I may not judge the person, but I may judge what that person is doing I don't want any part of. That's no judgment on them. It's a judgment on what they're doing. Because I don't want anything in my life that's going to stop me from being what God wants me to be. And you know, I, 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 don't, I, don't, I don't judge somebody. That's between them and the Lord. But I will judge what I have to allow my body to go into in a house. I mean, uh, I, I will love that. I, I will judge that where somebody lives at in their Christian life. I will judge that somebody, what they're involved in, what they're comfortable with, who they associate with. And I may say, you know what? Where I'm at, I, I, I can't let that come in. I don't want to go into that house. But I will judge the house that I take my body into. won't judge the person. The Bible says that the wise man, he wisely considers the house of the wicked. How do you do that? You do that through the principles of the Word of God. The child of God knows what God thinks about it, so he then makes his decisions in life based on the principles of God, what God thinks about it, before he just jumps into anything. I don't care what it is. 
You know, before he gets online and finds the perfect mate through the dating.com or christianmeatmarket.com, whatever it is. They, they, they get on there. They, 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 they want somebody so desperately in their life, they never consider the house. They never consider it. You mean, you actually think if you meet somebody online that they're going to say, oh, yeah, I'm this, I'm that, and I've killed four people, and I, you know, I, I, I'm a drunk, and I gamble, and I beat women, and all those things. Uh, uh, give me a call. <laughs> but that's what we do. You know why? Because we fail to consider the house that we're going into. We want what we want. And, and that's, you know, we all have that basic struggle. Every one of us. I don't care how godly we are. You know what the fundamental problem we have? Fundamentally, we want, at least Will does anyhow. We want what we want over what God wants. Many times. And when we want that, you know what I've seen in my life? I've seen people just move mountains to get what they wanted over what God wanted. If they would move the same mountain to get what God wanted, woo! That's the way we are, oh. Just the way we are. And, and I'm telling you, you know, it's one of those things where that, uh, it's the principles we use. 2 Thessalonians 5.21 says, prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. How do you prove all things in your life? You prove all things by looking at it and considering the house you're about to go into. No matter what it may be. It can be a religion. It can be a, a, a marriage that you're going to live in somebody's house. It can be a relationship that you're going to hang out in their house. It can be whatever you want it to be. I'll tell you, I'll give you a good example. Parents, you ought to stop and consider the house that your daughter or your son goes hangs out with people, kids in their house. Amen. I mean, all the time, you know, you got kids at school, they go to school and they got their, I mean, I, I'm appalled at some of the stuff that goes on. You know, when I was in school, you know, you were in high school before you got, now they're into what I was in in high school when they were in their fourth and fifth grade. And parents many times don't consider the house that their kid is going over to. And I want to tell you, there have been many a kid lost right there to the world. And believe me, many a kid was lost that way. Now, this wicked house that we are to stop and consider, obviously, in an overall concept, it'll be the world system. That always wants to destroy whatever we have with God. It's the place in the world where you live. And if you're a Christian, there's some great principles telling you that you may be in this world after you're saved, but you're no longer of this world. And many times God's people don't consider the house they're living in as a Christian, hanging out at. And it becomes our way of life. Years ago, I had a, a pastor friend of mine who I worked with at a church. Many of you know him. His name was Harold Massey. Harold Massey was one of the finest men I ever met in my life, <clears throat> but he was blind, totally blind. <clears throat> I would take Harold to make hospital calls because Harold was in charge of the hospital ministry, and obviously he couldn't drive. The joke was that we only let him drive on dark, cloudy days. <laughs> and he was cool. When I first met Harold, he brought me into his office, and he sat down, and he says, Look, I'm blind, 
You don't have to tiptoe around me. I know I'm blind. Just, I deal with it. I'm blind. Okay, I'm blind. It's, everything's all right. We make jokes about my being blind. Everything is fine. I'm not one of these prima donnas that I get offended when you talk about, I am blind. I got five jokes on blind people. I'll tell you right now if you want to hear them. <laughs> he was a great guy. I went over to pick him up at his house one day to take him to the hospital, and he wasn't quite ready yet. And he opened up the garage door, and, and, uh, and uh, so I, I went in. And he was still getting ready. And his wife had died at that particular point, so he was living by himself. I was amazed. I was absolutely amazed at how that he, in that house, he, being totally blind, he knew where everything was. He asked me if I wanted a cup of coffee. I said, sure. I started to go get it because I saw the coffee pot. He walked over, got a cup, got the thing, poured it, and, and, you know, and, you know, blind people have ways that they do stuff. The way he'd do it is he'd put his thumb in the coffee pot, in the coffee cup and he'd know how full it got. When it hit his, burn his finger, then he knew. And I always knew that of him because he didn't have any thumbnail on that from being in the coffee he always poured. And he brought the coffee over and gave it to me. He, he went in and put his shirt on. He did his own tie. And I'm thinking, and he's moving around the house, you know. I went home and tried it. I blindfolded myself in my house. I tripped over everything about killed myself. I tried that pouring thing one time. I poured it on my wrist. I had to go to the hospital, third-degree coffee burn. Do you think they didn't laugh at me for that when I told them how I did it? So anyway, he's going around this house everywhere he's going. I'm starting to think to myself, I don't think he's really blind. He's using this when he accidentally goes into the women's restroom instead of the men's and says, I'm sorry, I'm blind. I thought there was a great conspiracy here. He was blind. And you know what? You know how he knew how to get around that house? Because he lived there so long. And wherever you live at in your life today, wherever you're at in your life today that you're comfortable with and you know all about it, some of you know more about the world than you know about the Bible. Some of you know more about cooking meth than you know about the Bible. <laughs> some of you know more about hot wiring cars than you do the Bible. You know why? That's where you've been living all your life. Oh, this house is a great study. You gotta consider the house. You gotta consider it. Now listen to me very carefully. You're never going to hear a greater truth out of my mouth than what I'm about to say to you. And I mean this. And I've said it many, many times, but you don't listen to me. Most of you don't. So I'm going to say it again and again and again, and I'll say it till either the Lord comes back or he takes me home to be with the Lord. But I want you to listen very carefully to what I'm about to say in conjunction to the houses that you're go, we're going into. And I want to tell you this, and this is probably one of the single greatest truths of life. Life is about the choices we make. Amen. That one concept needs to be reinforced over and over again in the minds of God's people. Nothing will end our spiritual walk with God faster than just one or two bad choices. We have terms that we use. Boy, they got a lot of baggage. We have terms that we use. Boy, there's a lot of drama going on here. Baggage and drama come from the bad choices we make. A real child of God who is on fire for God doesn't have any baggage. It's all in a backpack because he travels light. 
when we stop off in some of the wrong houses and stay there for two years, three years, four years, five years, hang out there, you accumulate a lot of baggage. And a lot of drama goes on. Now, my advice to you is simple, and I, I'm speaking indirectly to you young singles that I spend so much time with and, and love you so much, and I love our singles' time together in the ministry and all the things that we do together, and you young couples that are still very young in life. Of course, this is for anybody. But, you know, you young kids, you've got your life ahead of you. Us older folks, you know, we're, we're, we, we, we've made a lot more mistakes than, than many of you have. Thank you. Now she will stand up and tell us what those mistakes are. We want to all hear that. Get your notebooks out. We're going to hear it now. No, I'm just kidding. Ah, that's right. Well, one of them wasn't to the guy you married because he's the best guy on the planet. And the second one was not the church that you're going to. Okay. I'm, I'm good. My advice to you is this, kids. Make as few bad choices in life as you can. Bad choices will compromise everything in your life. Bad choices have a tendency, when you keep on making them, there's a compounding effect. You don't have this bad choice, this bad choice, this bad choice, this bad choice. They all compound on each other and create a terrible situation and a terrible mess. I've had people saved and lost get right with God or get saved, you know, and want to do right. And I commend them for that. And I think that's exactly what they need to do. And I'm always here to help them no matter what. I've said it many, many times. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what you've been into. I don't care what your situation is. My job is to help you when you want to do what's right to get there. It may take a long time. We'll get there together. We'll work it together. That's my commitment to anybody in this church. But I've seen them want to do right, but it slows them up. You know why? Because they are haunted by the bad choices that they've made in life. And it drags them down. It drags them down. I've seen them have three or four kids out of wedlock. Never been married. I've seen them have two or three, four kids, you know, out of a bad marriage. And the husband or the guy who fathered the kids, he's nowhere around. They have to shoulder that all by themselves. I want to tell you something. And I'm just saying, I'm just talking to you now based on the principle. You can like it or not like it. Single parenting is really tough. It's really tough because of the fact it's not the way God designed it to be. Now, I'm not casting in anybody that's a single parent, and we have plenty of single parents in this church. What I'm trying to get you to understand is single parenting is harder than just being a parent with two moms and a dads in it. I'm not saying you can't do it. I'm not saying you can't be successful at it. I've seen many of you who are. But I'm telling you, you better consider that house. It's tough. Many times you get some deadbeat that fathers your children, but he wants nothing to do with them after that. No money coming in. What do you do then? I mean, the, the, sin, write this down. Sin never leaves a person any better than it finds them. I've seen people have been through two or three bad marriages. You know, I'll give everybody one bad marriage because it just, those things happen today. But you take somebody, I know one guy, I know one gal's been married ten times. 
Now, you married 10 times, you've got some relationship problems. If you're a guy who will marry a woman who's been married 10 times, you've got some brain cells missing someplace in your life. You've been smoking that stuff way too long. I've seen those things. I've seen when these things begin to happen. Here comes the compounding effect. You make two or three bad choices. You get yourself in a bad situation. And then financially, everything goes to pieces. And then what happens next? Depression sets in. You get depressed about it. I mean, who wouldn't? It's your problems and I have to listen to you. I go home depressed. Terrible financial situations, undisciplined spending, failed child support. They like having the kids. They like making babies. They just don't like to support them after they make them. Oh, but I love him. I love him. You deserve whatever you get. You get into, I've seen women get into abusive relationship. I've never seen a man get into abusive relationship. I guess it happens. Does it happen? It happens? Okay. I now have a case. Okay, get your notebooks out. Stand up and tell us all about that one. The only one I thought was, uh, years ago we had a, a couple lived across the street from us, and she was, she was a real bully lady. I mean, she was, she was not a nice person. And her husband was just a little skinny, scrawny guy. His legs looked like toothpicks. I mean, he, he, he was cute. He was comical. And he'd come out, and he never wore a matching. He'd have plaid shorts on and then a plaid top that didn't match. You know, like some of you when you wear camouflage. It doesn't match. Camouflage has to match. You don't wear a digital pattern with a leaf pattern. That is untacky. They, in the war, they will not kill you. They will die laughing at your tacky camouflage. That's the way it works. Why do bully women always have little dogs? She had a little schnauzer rat with a genetic defect dog. She'd hook it up, and I'd sit over there, and every time I'd see her go out, I just had to go out and pretend like I was doing something. Because it was the most comical thing in the world when she took her dog out. That little dog and this lady, she'd have it out there, and she'd, she, the dog would go out there, and she'd say, go potty, go potty. Well, you know, I tried that with my dogs all day long. It doesn't work at all. Dog is going to go potty when the dog wants to go potty. It's like I had a, we had a blonde lady in a church one time, and she asked me, she says, they just put up a sign down by our road that said deer crossing. And I said, okay. She says, how do they deer know where to cross? <laughs> Years ago, we went to a big mall, and I had a girl with us, and she was not the brightest bulb in the box, I guarantee you. So we go into this mall, and they got this big ledger. And it has all the stores on it, and it says down here, you were here. She looked at me and says, how do they know that? <laughs> Those are true stories, man. So this lady takes this dog out there, go potty. And you can hear her all down the street. Go potty, go potty, go potty. I guarantee you, every dog in the neighborhood wanted to go potty. And, and she takes him out there, come on, go potty. Go. And the more the dog refuses, the louder she gets. And she's, she's getting frustrated. I'm thinking to myself, she's going to kill this dog. I always had in my mind that that dog was a picture of her husband. She running him around on a leash. Go potty. Go potty. Go potty. I guess there are. 
But I've seen women get into abusive relationships. The guy will abuse them. You know what? They just keep going back for more. I'm telling you. And it's a thing where they, they never have considered the house that they're going into before they get into it. I, I've seen parents have issue with their kids and destroy their family. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, it happens all the time. The list is endless. It goes on and on and on. But it's all because of a house that they didn't consider before they entered into it. Some of God's people have more baggage than American Airlines. And then they wonder why they struggle. Now, I want to say something to you. Because right now I'm on a doom and gloom ending here. You can fix whatever problem you have. I don't care what it is. You can fix whatever problem you have. The problem with fixing your issues is not the Bible or God or this church. It's you wanting to do it. But I will tell you this, and you want to learn this. The more bad choices you make, the more compounding effect in your life, the harder it is to get out from under it. I mean, it's just that simple. You put, I mean, you put, you know, you put 10,000 pounds on your back of, 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 of bad choices, and you're not going to win many races in life, and you're certainly not going to win the race of Christianity that you're supposed to run because you're all weighted down. Now, there's always something you can do. Always something you can do. There's never a time in your life that there isn't something. But I'm going to tell you something. You better learn this. When you get into a very radical situation, it's going to take radical decision to get out of it. I mean, we get the idea that, you know, that, oh, man, my life's such a total mess. I'm going to get saved and God's going to just take it all away. No, no. There are steps to fix it. Hey, I've seen men and women at 25, young, youthful, but at 25, as far as God was concerned, their life was over because of the baggage and the drama that, and the pressure that they're under. Now, that doesn't mean you can't get out from under it, but I'm going to tell you something. There are some things you've got to do. Whatever, you put, whatever house you go into, whatever baggage you have in your life, whatever bad choices you make, know this. It takes longer to get out of it than it did to go in it. And people want to get into bad situations just like that. And then they want to get out of them just like that. You don't. Sometimes you have to crawl out. Sometimes you have to get drug out. But there's a way out. When God gave us the Bible, when God gave us the church, when God gave us a pastor, look at Ephesians chapter 4. Now listen to me. They're all, all these three things, they all provide many, many, many things. I get that. But the number one thing, without a doubt, the Bible, right Bible, a church, the right church, and a pastor, the right pastor, will provide for you. Will to help you make good choices in life. You don't want to make those three things your enemy. You know, those are the only three things. And God tells you they're a gift in Ephesians chapter 4. Those are the three things that God gave us so we would have and make the right choices. And those are the three things we get an attitude about. And know this, when you get saved or get right, 
uh, and already have a lot of baggage? God's not going to come down and just take it all away or erase all of our stupid bad choices away. He's not. It comes at a place where you have to, at some point in your life, to begin the process. You know what you have to do? You have to take responsibility and accountability for your own bad choices and quit blaming everybody else. I have moms and dads all through my life, all the years, say, well, you know, my son, he doesn't come to church because he hung out with so-and-so, and so-and-so just ruined my son. And I always think into my brain, so-and-so didn't ruin your son. Who taught your son the value system that so-and-so ever got into his life to begin with? Amen. You did? But see, we like to blame it on everybody else, don't we? I'm going to tell you something. When it comes to you fixing whatever issues we have, it starts with your taking accountability and responsibility. As my old drill sergeant said, it's a blink sandwich and everybody has to take a bite. It's yours. You have to take ownership of your bad choices. I can help you. I can fix it for you. I can get you in the right direction and give you everything you need. But at the end of the day, you have to own it. Now, we're not big on responsibility and accountability today in the Christian church. We're not. Because it's so easy to blame everybody else. Well, my ex-wife. Well, my ex-husband. Well, my rotten son. Well, my rotten daughter. Well, my rotten mother-in-law. Well, my rotten father-in-law. Well, my rotten this. Well, my rotten that. No, 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 no. Get right down to it. You got your own issues. God won't just come down and take away all the stupid bad choices we make, but I'll tell you what He will do. He will give you and me everything we need to fix it. And it's found within the Word of God. It's found within the New Testament church, and it's found within the pastor that God gives you, if they're good. You have to deal with each issue and walk through it so you'll learn from it. When you don't take responsibility for your actions, you don't learn from the mistakes you make. It's the number one fundamental concept of good parenting. Hey, God will do a lot of things for us. He really will. Praise the Lord. But I'll tell you one thing God will not do. God will never enable us in our bad choices. He will never enable us in our bad choices. He'll never encourage us in our bad choices. He will hold us accountable and responsible, and we'll have to face them, but God will never just enable you and me in the bad choices that we make. He won't say, oh, it's okay. You know what? We'll just forget about that one. No. When you violate a principle, there's a responsibility to that principle. We have to deal with our bad choices one at a time. Now here... You don't have to deal with them by yourself. You're in a place right now this morning, if you really so desire to do what's right, you're in a place this morning, if you're willing to submit yourself to the Word of God, to this church, and to the people that want to help you, you're in a place here this morning that you'll never have to make a bad choice again. That's a pretty good deal. So what's your attitude this morning? All my life I've watched parents enabling their kids. And in every case, it winds up destroying those kids. Every case. 
Parents won't hold them accountable. Parents won't keep them responsible. Parents just keep running to their rescue. They keep bailing them out of every bad situation they get into. They're just hovering over them, you know, always throwing out the life jackets, never standing firm and saying, you know what, you got yourself into this. You want help getting out. Let me show you. I'll help you, but here's how we're going to do it. I love you. There ain't anything I have that you couldn't have. Any knowledge that I have about the Bible that I've spent the last almost 50 years of my life, it's yours. I'll spend whatever time it takes. I'll help you, whatever. If you want to do what's right, I will go the distance. We won't even talk about the extra mile. We'll go all the way to St. Louis and then beyond. But we're going to do it God's way. I've seen enough of your way. And I certainly have seen enough of my way. But we're going to get back to the principles. We need to take ownership of our bad choices. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. With dealing with people and their issues, I always tell them this. And I'm talking about major issues on all different levels. And I've seen some horrible ones. I've seen situations where, boy, I've been in situations of child molestation, child abuse, wife abuse, now husband abuse. I've seen it all, man. I've dealt with it all. I have seen it to the place where it's absolutely unbelievable. And when I sit down with somebody that's got some major issues in their life, a stronghold or whatever the case may be, and they really want to fix it, when I first meet with them, my only goal in our first meeting, I'm not under any illusion that I can solve in an hour's time 20, 30 years of your problems. My goal was just to send you out of there with a plan that will give you light and hope that you finally know that you found a place where if you really want to change and make things work, you found a home to be able to do that. You found a house, the house of God. I always tell them, look, I'll do with you whatever needs to be done. I'll help you however I can. Obviously, after they've laid their issues out, it's very clear that we are not going to solve any of it tonight but we can through a process of time if they do what they need to do. And I always tell them, you know what? We can't fix everything right now, but I'll tell you, right now we can do something to begin the process of getting you through all of this. And that thing that we can do tonight, from this point on, that will begin the process and, and stop everything where it's at, is from this point on, we stop making bad choices. How many, we had a lot of rain last couple, last month. <clears throat> How many got water in your basement? I used to live back in Ohio. We had an old house, and uh, every time it rained, I mean, it was an old cinder block down back probably in the turn of the century. and It, it, it just leaked like a sieve. I was sitting there down downtown one time and it was raining and I said, well, I don't have any water. And all of a sudden I heard something. I looked over in the wall and a piece of the caulking popped out and a big old stream of water came right out of that thing. Now, you know, we all get water in our basement. 
and the water comes in, you know, and that's a terrible thing because it does so much damage. And, you know, and, and when you get water damage in your basement, there's a lot of cleanup involved. The thing that you don't want to get from your water damage is mold. Mold will get in your walls. It'll get in your, it'll get in your TV set. It'll get in everything. Mold will just start. When you get mold, you got problems. So you got to clean it all up, and you got to get the basement or the upstairs or wherever the water came in. You got to get it cleaned up and cleaned up. But you know what? You know what you got to do before you start cleaning anything up? You got to stop the water from coming in. If you don't stop the water from coming in, you're going to clean it up and it's just going to flood again. You know what you got to do before you, you start putting your life back together? You got to stop making bad choices. You got to stop the water from coming in. Because if you don't, you'll just try to work on this and then you'll just keep adding more bad decisions to it and it won't go anywhere. At some point in your life, kids, at some point in your life, you have to clear off a spot and you have to say, from this point on, whatever it takes, whatever it costs, whatever I have to do, I'm going to stop making bad choices. In our people ministry here, for those of you who we've been at it now, you know, five or six years, and uh, when we deal with people, I don't ever say much about this. It just happens because it's the way I operate. But I, I, I work with a support team concept. If I have somebody that needs to be discipled and has some issues that we're going to work through, I'll put two or three ladies with them, two or three guys with them. Uh, I want it to be more than just the time that they meet. I want to build, because I know that about discipleship in somebody's life is only the entry level to the problems they have in their life. And I want to be support for them. So I've trained men and women who are fantastic at being support for people. They'll listen to you. They'll help you. My, my door is always open. You can call me 24-7. Chris Piscano called me at, th- at quarter to three in the morning the other day. I didn't answer the phone because I was sleeping, but God bless you for calling. <laughs> I, I, I think that works well because you need to have an understanding that we're here to help you. And I'll put two or three ladies with a gal, two or three guys with a gal, and they'll form that support group. And that support group will give them through their struggles. And you know as well as I do if you do disciple. Discipleship, as I said, you just start talking about the Bible and discipleship and you get through the lessons at a snail's pace because all the other issues come out. That's what it's supposed to be. And then the team, the support team, they work together. They give them good, solid, biblical support so they can begin the process of stop making bad choices. Good, solid principles to live your life by, to fix what already is broken in your life. And I'm going to tell you something. In this church here, you don't ever have to make another bad choice in your life unless you just want to. You don't. Everything is in place here. Everything is here. I've said it all the time. Nobody's going to hurt you here. You will find churches out there where somebody will hurt you. Nobody will hurt you here. I'll say it again. You may hurt yourself. Nobody here is going to hurt you. There will be a time, no matter what your attitude is about whatever, that you can't get what you need to fix what you want to fix. The problem is not us. The problem is, do you really want to fix it? 
You don't ever have to make a bad choice again unless you just want to. And believe me, many do. In dealing with people and helping them through their issues, there's two key words you've got to have. If you don't have, of course, that's true of any relationship, really, but it's certainly true in dealing with people. You've got to have two things. You've got to have honesty and you've got to have transparency. You can't have a relationship with anybody without those two things. You can try, but you won't. And if you, you, you want to really fix your problems, I don't care how bad it is. I don't care how embarrassing it is to you. You know what? You don't have to get up in front of the church and lay it out like you do in some churches. You can just take it to those people, and we're here to help you. Now, our verse says, The righteous man wisely considereth the house of the wicked. Now, I want to give you seven ways you consider a house before you go into it. Seven ways you consider it. And I told you already, the house is a place that you're comfortable. It can be a literal house. It can be your own spiritual body. It can be, it can be a religion. It's something that you go into where you take up residency that you live. It doesn't have to be a frame dwelling. It could be a religion. Could be a relationship. Something that you put yourself into that is going to have an impact on your life, good or bad, and you don't consider it before you go into it. That's all. Seven things. And the first thing, if I'm looking at something in my life, a house, I'm going to ask and consider how was this house really built? Ecclesiastes talked about ten vanities of building something in this world that will wind up being vanity and wicked. Was this house I'm going into built on the vanities found in the Bible? The book of Proverbs has nine characteristics of a wise man. The book of Proverbs has eight characteristics of a fool. Those are principles. When I'm looking at entering into a house, I'm going to ask myself, I'm going to consider, how was this house built? Was it built by a wise man or was it built by a fool? You know why a Jehovah Witness and a Mormon, Seventh-day Disadvantages and all those other crowds, those cult groups out there? Now, they're all lost and they're going to die and go to hell. And I feel terrible about that, but you're not going to convince many of them. But you know why they are the way they are? I mean, if you would just step back and look at those American cults, they're the most ridiculous thing on the planet. You can blow them out of the water in 20 seconds or less if you just know a little bit about the Bible and history. You know why the Jehovah Witnesses are millions and millions of people strong? You know why the Mormons are growing in millions and millions all over the world? You know why the Seventh-day Adventists uh, are all over the place? You know why all these cult groups are, are, are where they're at and continually growing? It's one simple answer. They never considered the house they got into. If they would have considered it, they never would have got into it. So the first thing I ask myself and consider about anything, how was this house really built? That's true of churches. How was this church really built? Was it built on the Bible, built on man? Was it built the biblical way or the wrong way? Paul said in, in, in Romans chapter 15, verse 20, he says, he says, I would never build on another man's foundation. You bowl lay your own foundation. 
Consider, consider how the house was built. Then the second thing I would ask you to consider, why was the house built? Was it built for the glory of God or built for the glory of man? Was it built to further the gospel or hinder the gospel? Is God in this house or is the devil in this house? And how do I tell? The answer is principles. The devil was so close to Christ that you couldn't tell him apart. I always use the analogy that if the devil walked in and Christ walked in that back door back there and one of them came around that way and one came around this way and stood on both sides, you couldn't tell them apart. Because you think the devil's got horns and a red suit and a tail and a pitchfork. You think Christ has a halo and floats on the, on the air. I want to tell you right now, based on the Word of God, that if the devil and the Christ walked in this room and stood here and stood here, you would not be able to tell them apart until they opened their mouth and spoke. Consider who built the house. Why, why was this house built? And then you want to, the third thing you want to ask yourself, who did the work on building, on the building of this house? That's a good one. Back in the book of Ezra, when they go back to build God's house in chapter 4, the adversaries show up. And the adversaries show up when Nehemiah and Ezra want to build the house of God. They show up and they say this, Let us build with you because we seek your God as you do. You know what they said? Hit the road. We don't need you to build our house. We'll build it ourselves. You know why? They considered the house that they were coming from and didn't want them part of God's house. You know, there's some things you ought to consider in your life or some houses you've been hanging out in that you ought to get out of and start hanging out in God's house. That's just me. Psalm 127 verse 1 says, Except the Lord build a house, they labor in vain and build it. You know what, today in your own house, your body, and your home house at home that you live in with your family, it's a testament of who really did the work on your house. Just look at your kids. The testimony of who did the work in your house is evident and obvious from what's there. Well, the fourth thing I would consider... I'd consider what foundation this house was built on. Matthew 7, verse 26 says, on rock or sand. How about your own house? 2 Corinthians 5, 1 says, For we know if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, a house, not made with hands eternal in the heaven. You consider in your own house this morning? What foundation is your house built on? The rock or sand? You said, I've been saved five, six, seven, eight years. Really? You ought to have a good handle on the Bible. Do you? How about the person you're going to marry? What foundation is that house going to be built on? I mean, you can take that and, and put it into our own church. Why do we believe what we believe? Why do we believe the doctrines and stand for the things that we stand for? What is the foundation on which this house is built? Of course, that foundation goes back all the way to the, through the church age. We believe today exactly what they believe back through the church age with the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Huguenots. This church, this church is built on a sure foundation. 
And you know what? It didn't come down to not only to why what we believe, but why we believe what we believe. What foundation are you built on today? What foundation are we building our own house on today? What foundation are we building the house that our children are growing up in today? When they go off to their friends or go off to here or go off to run out to a movie with a bunch of school people or this or that or go over to a sleepover or go over to there, do you really know what goes on over there? Or is it just, well, they're Christian. And then some tragedy happens, something falls down, and somebody says, I don't know what happened. Wrong house! Didn't consider it. Number five. What is the spiritual condition of the house? Oh, excuse me. What is the spiritual condition of those within this house? House of the wicked? House of the mixed multitude? House of the people who don't care about church? House of the people who always complain and, and about everything? Many a father and a mother lost their child to the world by not considering the house that they prepared for their own children. I've heard it all my life. I've lost my daughter. I've lost my son. I've lost my kids. And I said, this so fault, or this here, or this situation here, or this situation No, you failed to consider the house that you built for them. House filled with anger. House filled with strife. House filled with indecision. House filled with worldliness. Houses filled with divorce. Houses filled with drunkenness. Houses filled with fear. Houses filled with turmoil. Consider the house. What's the spiritual condition of those that's in the house where you're hanging out with? Sixth one. Consider this. It's certainly not last, but it's certainly a powerful one. What does God say about this house that you're going to enter into? Do you even care? What's his thoughts on it? What are the principles involved? You know, if you just take number six right there and put it into your life from this point on, you'd end just about all the strife in your life. This church is not built on Bob's opinion or my opinion. I don't have these crazy ideas about the Bible. I didn't come up with them. those Those are God's opinions on it. This church is not built on my opinion. It's built on God's opinion. When he looks at this passage or this book or this Bible, what does he say about it? Not what does the scholar say about it. Not the last five books you read about it. What does he say about it? What saith the scriptures? Jesus said when he was confronted with the devil in his house, it is written, Matthew chapter 4. And the last thing you want to consider about this house is what will be the final outcome of this house? Consider that. I mean, I wouldn't buy a house that was a great deal. No matter how beautiful it was, I wouldn't buy a house if it was half the price of what other houses went for if it was built in a flood zone. Why would not you do that? I'd consider the end if it rains real hard. We are famous for building our house in places that are just going to lead to a disaster. We're famous for it. We look for it. 
I think we get up every morning and get in the Bible and say, no, I don't want that verse. No, I don't want that principle. Uh, I see. Give me the verses that tell me how to screw my life up. Verse 13 says that God will overthrow this house. At the end, this house, if it isn't God's house, it isn't built on God's principle, it's going to get overthrown. We spend so much time investing our lives in things that God's just going to crumple up like a piece of useless paper at the end when He comes back. You know what? When you look at this thing, you look at this in three ways. First thing you look at it, how will this house, what will be the final outcome of this house at the great white throne judgment? A lot of God's people are putting themselves in with unsaved situations, unsaved people, running around with an unsaved crowd, man, just like it's, they're God's people. They've got their lives into this thing. They hook up with somebody that's not saved. They have kids with them. They get, they get married to them or they get in a relationship with them and it's just an absolute disaster. How's that all going to come out at the great white throne judgment? And not, not that for the child of God. How's it going to come out? How's this house going to end up at the judgment seat of Christ when he says over there in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we have a house eternal in the heavens, not made with hands, that we desire to be clothed. Then I just ask you in life in general, what will be the final outcome of this house that you're investing your life in in this life? Your marriage, your kids, your career, what you want to do in life. All the twists and turns of, of adding the things in your life that are just going to slow you down and in time, if you don't change it, take you out of what God called you to do. You know, there's lots of things to consider in the Bible, but there's two great considerations in the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, we're admonished by God to consider Him that endured such contradictions of sinners against yourself. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. I would think that before you and I would enter into any house, we'd allow ourselves to be part of anything. I would just think. And I know we're human. I know we always don't think the way we should. I don't, and I'm sure you don't either. But I would hope <clears throat> that before we do something, before we get into something that's going to be a decision that's going to change our lives maybe forever, make us lose our family, lose our kids, lose our own testimony and reputation, I would hope that the first consideration we would stop and consider is consider Him. Consider what He did for you because of what He wants you to do for Him. That ought to be our first consideration. And once we consider Him and all that He's done for us, why He saved us, the purpose, the plan, all the things that He has for us, then the next thing that we ought to consider is found in Proverbs chapter 21 right here, 12 and 13. We then consider the house that we go into. Don't go someplace, allow things into our lives that are going to take us out from being what God wants us to be. I say it again, and I'm done now. I only got through half this sermon, but that's good. I won't have to write one for next week. I'll just preach the other half. I'm good. <clears throat> Clean it up, through a few poems in it, sing a couple songs, and we're in for it. Tell you this. Listen to me. I know you're all here, and I know you're all in different levels of spiritual growth. Some of you, you've come past a lot of things in your life, and you really helped me, and I couldn't do what I do without you. 
show me on that mid-level that you're really growing, you're really learning, and boy, I'm really, I'm just pumping you full of everything I can to keep you, get you going where you need to. Show me, you're into this thing, you're just coming in, about to get in, and you got some issues in your life. I'm going to tell you this to you, <clears throat> and I'm done. I want you to go home with this. You now have finally arrived at a place called Old Pass Baptist Church who believes a book that God gave him without any revelation at all that it's the absolute perfect Word of God. You're at a place now where we have an absolute standard for everything in our lives in faith and practice. We believe it, we teach it. And we're here for one reason, many reasons, but one reason in particular based on you here today. We're here for you. Most churches exist so you can do something for them. I don't want you to do anything for me. I don't want you to do anything for this church. Whatever you do down the line, you do for the Lord. First and foremost, this church, as all churches should, unfortunately don't. This church doesn't exist for you to do something for us. This church exists for us to do something for you. We are here for one purpose only, among many other reasons and purposes. That is to give you the ability, if you so desire, that you'll never, never, <clears throat> I mean never, have to make another bad choice in your life. That you can begin the process of turning it around, becoming baggage-free, and getting rid of every weight that does so easily beset you, that you may run the race that God has called you to race. run. It may cost you some things. It may be some very hard choices that you have to make. Radical problems require radical decisions. But there is nothing that you cannot get out of if you really, really, really want to change your life. This church exists for that sole purpose, among many other reasons. First and foremost is that you'll never, never have to go through one problem or issue again by yourself unless you just choose to. And you'll never have to make another bad choice or decision anywhere in your life unless you just say, I want to keep on making bad choices. That's your call. That's your choice. I don't recommend it, but I understand it. But that's what Proverbs chapter 21, verse 12, really lays out. The house, consider the house that you're about to enter into. Is it God's house? Is it a house of the wicked? And realize that the choices that we make concerning the house that we get comfortable living in will affect everything else in our lives. Well, we'll hold up there, and I'll call you back up here in about